0: Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Digital marketing has moved forwards, but most consulting firms haven't. Many consulting firms still see their corporate blog as their sole digital marketing channel and find themselves frustrated when these blogs yield little, if any, results. For those consultancies that understand digital marketing though, it can be a huge asset and help them achieve rapid business growth. In fact, at Create Engage, we've recently written a case study of one successful consulting firm that used digital marketing to help them grow over 400% in just three years. Having spent countless hours researching consulting firms and consulting leaders for this podcast, it became very clear that while some firms do digital marketing well, the vast majority of consulting firms struggle to leverage its power and don't know where to start. To help those of you who want to harness the power of digital marketing to grow your consulting business, but don't have the knowledge, capacity, or in-house capability to do so, I launched Create Engage, the first digital marketing agency for the management consulting industry. As former consultants ourselves, we understand the challenges that you face when it comes to delivering effective digital marketing that engages prospective clients and generates leads. Having worked in the industry, we understand consulting buyers, what resonates with them and what doesn't. This enables us to harness the latest in digital marketing in a way that aligns with your brand and your market positioning to attract the prospective clients that you're looking to target. We understand that each consultancy is unique and have a range of services to help you shape, implement and sustain effective digital marketing strategies that deliver results, regardless of where you are on your digital marketing journey. If you would like to find out more, about how Create Engage can help you use digital marketing to take your business to the next level, then send me an email at nick at createengage.co.uk or go to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can download that free case study that breaks down the digital marketing strategies used by one successful consulting firm to help them grow over 400% in just three years and gives you the secrets they used so that you can apply them in your own firm. If you want to outpace your competitors, and stand out in the crowded consulting market, then get in touch. We'd love to help you grow your business through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to Climbing Consulting. Today's episode, or episodes I should probably say, is a first for the podcast, and one I'm really excited to share with you. Last month, I teamed up with two industry-leading experts to bring you a truly comprehensive series to explain what you need to be focusing on to help you succeed as we come out of COVID-19 and beyond. Over these three webinars, myself and my co-hosts, Rob Garner from Garwood Solutions and Derry Hughes from Honeycomb PS, shared the three elements that you need to be focusing on to set your business up for success. Now, if you've followed the podcast so far, or you've read any of our eBooks, you'll know that at Create Engage, we are big fans of both collaboration and repurposing content. And for any of you listening who's thinking about your own marketing, this series is a great example of doing both of these things. Now back to the series. If you're currently building a consulting business, I suspect lockdown has thrown a spanner in your growth plans. Regardless of whether you were looking to scale your business or you were on a path to sale, the current pandemic has at best set you back and at worst left you and your business close to the edge and having to make some really difficult decisions. Now, fortunately, we believe there's a way through, and that's by focusing on the three pillars that you need to build to give you the foundations for the success that you want to achieve as we come out of lockdown. Now, this isn't just one of those made up models that seem to be cropping up right now. This is based on real world, real life experience, building on Rob's own journey as a consulting entrepreneur and someone who has built and sold multiple eight figure consulting businesses. And it's worth saying, if you wanna go back and listen to Rob's journey in detail, he was episode 51 for this podcast. Now, to help you understand what you need to be focusing on to accelerate your business out of lockdown, I teamed up with Rob and Derry to bring you this series dedicated to the three pillars that you need to be prioritizing right now. And those three pillars are your value proposition, your operations, and your marketing. In today's episode, Rob explains the impact that COVID 19 is having on the growth, development, and change of the professional services sector and what it means for you and your consulting business. He explains the implications for your business strategy and why you need to be focusing on your client value proposition right now if you want to set your business up for success and realize that growth target or exit that you're aiming for. With all the uncertainty at the moment, I'm sure that you'll get a lot of confidence and clarity from what Rob shares in this episode. So without further ado, please enjoy the first in our three-part series on the three pillars of post-lockdown success.
1: Okay, let's make a start. It's a couple of minutes past two and the arrival of attendees has slowed slightly. So welcome to everybody. Uh, This is the first of three webinars hosted by uh, Garwood Solutions with Create, Engage and Honeycomb PS on the subject of post-lockdown success. Each webinar will address a different aspect of it. Uh, In fact, as we've described it, one of the three pillars, either the value proposition, operations uh, or marketing. Today's webinar will address the importance and the approach to renewing the VNP in your, your value propositions. We'll spend about thirty minutes or so in presentation mode, and then we'll open it up to Q and A. So please do submit your questions through the Zoom question and answer uh, window. That will be great. So let's begin. I will lead today's um, webinar, although I've been joined by Nick Sinnott from Create Engage and Derry Hughes from Honeycomb PS for the Q and A. I'll ask Derry and Nick to introduce themselves in a moment. However, for those that don't know me, I'm Rob Garner, one of the founders of Garwood Solutions. I've spent over 30 years in consulting and professional services organisations. Most notably, I was a partner in KPMG for a number of years. I was co-founder of Avail Consulting, a kind of naughty startup that we scaled to 80-something staff and a turnover of 13 million. And we were also a Sunday Times best company to work for. And we did all that before selling to the tribal group in 2010. I've also been the managing director of two NHS commissioning support units. For those of you that don't know, they were not-for-profit, or are, should I say, not-for-profit trading organisations within the NHS community, providing business and clinical services um, to other trusts within the structure. And latterly, I was the CEO of the Tribal Group, an international education and software services business of a turnover of circa 120 million. All of these roles had their kind of own discrete challenges, but actually also they all had one thing in common, which was at some point in my kind of leadership, we had to kind of reinvent our value propositions while still providing services, actually often in very kind of challenging circumstances. Today, I have a plural life. Half of my life is part of that formation of the leadership team of Garwood. So with Graham Underwood and our fellow directors at Simon England and Stuart Galley, we now provide kind of performance improvement, advice and guidance to the professional services sector. In that, we support organisations with strategy and governance, funding, operations, and also platforms, that the kind of systems to support operations. The other part of my life, I have four non-exec director, strategy board advisor positions, typically with professional services businesses in kind of scale-up mode. Nick, could I just ask you to introduce yourself?
0: Sure, thanks Rob. Nick Sinnott from Create Engage, as it says on the slide, we are a digital marketing agency that specializes in the consulting industry and our focus is on helping consulting firms use effective digital marketing to generate return on investment. Now, as I know this is only meant to be a brief intro, I won't go into too much of what that is. That's for next Thursday's session. But that's really where we help our clients. It's a common challenge we find those in our industry have. Background is as a management consultant. So I come at this having having been in your shoes. I get the challenges of, of what it's like to, to work with clients and sell to them. And as well as that, also run the UK's leading podcast for the consulting industry, of which Rob has kindly appeared as a guest, called Climbing Consulting, where... I interview leaders from the industry to share their advice, much as, as we're going to and Rob's going to today. I can send you more information on that. We ask a question at the end and we can follow up on that. But that's a little bit more about me. And as I say, we'll go into more detail about marketing in the, the third session of this series, which is next
2: Thursday. Thanks, Nick. That's great. Derry, could I ask you to do the same as well? Sure. Thanks, Rob. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Derry. He's the, the founder of Honeycomb. I founded Honeycomb a couple of years ago to work with the leaders of boutique consulting firms on their operations. So we do this in three ways. Firstly, we help people develop an operations plan. Secondly, we provide training and coaching services. And thirdly, it's outsourced operations services to actually help consulting firms run their businesses. Uh, Prior to Honeycomb, I was the chief finance and operations officer at Credo Business Consulting, which we grew to about 15 million turnover and then sold to Teneo Holdings in 2017. And previously, uh, before I got into the operational side of consulting, I I was a strategy consultant many years at Bain & Company, and then uh, as an independent consultant as well. And I'll, be, uh, I'll be leading on the, uh, the webinar next Tuesday to talk you through operations and flexibility and control.
1: Thanks, Derry. That's fab. Thank you very much indeed. So shall we move on? Before we kind of get into the real kind of core of the webinar, uh, what I actually wanted to do was present a bit of a hypothesis. That hypothesis will present effectively a context for the conversation today. Um, We believe that COVID-19 should or rather will kind of reset your business for the next three to five years. Why should it reset your business? Well, because those that respond to the challenge of COVID-19 will emerge fitter and faster from the inevitable recessionary dip. Why will? Well, because if you don't do it to yourself, we believe the market will do it to you and you're very likely to be a loser from that process. And why three to five years? Well, let's consider the following model. This is a kind of typical kind of innovation adoption curve. It ranges from your early adopters to your laggards, and this kind of concept of a late majority in the middle. If we look at typically how that kind of manifests itself, yeah, then of course it manifests itself, and you know, these things are adopted over years. the example timeline there but you know potentially you know three four five years is what we would be looking at what we kind of believe that COVID-19 has done is to move that from years to months now whether it's four months or whether it's five months or whether it's longer actually is is for a little bit of debate but we actually believe and and, you know several other commentators believe too that kind of COVID-19 has accelerated kind of years of innovation into months. To respond to that innovation actually requires more of a revolution response than an evolution response. Yeah. Why so? Well, we believe that actually if you don't respond now and don't respond positively and productively, you know, then the acceleration of innovation is happening now, and speed of response to it is an absolute competitive advantage. And therefore, the pace with which you adapt or adopt your business will be critical to what we believe is is kind of your success coming out of, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic, but actually also coming out of the recession. So that we thought, I think, is very much the kind of call to arms about why you should respond now. Now let's start to talk about what we think the response should be. As we've said, and I've said already, you know, in the introduction, we think there are three pillars to this. Value propositions, operations and digital marketing. In terms of value propositions, what are we talking about? We're talking about renewing your value proposition. And we'll talk much more about that through the course of this webinar and you know, and I'll address that today. But as Derry and Nick have already introduced themselves, you know, in the upcoming webinars next week, Derry will look at operations, that kind of practical work, the practical applications of process and the principles around it. And then also next week, so that's on Tuesday, on Thursday, Nick will pick up on kind of digital marketing, that articulation of your value proposition, the showcasing of your experience and your expertise. What we'll now do, though, is kind of really delve into the value proposition pillar of this. I wanted to start with a definition of a value proposition. I'm sure you've all got your own interpretations of what a value proposition is, you know, uh, and I'm sure they will all differ, but I'm sure they will all be kind of flavors of a common theme. Actually, for this session, I've set a kind of, quite a wide and quite an inclusive definition of what I mean by a value proposition. Uh, specifically, you know, a value proposition is a promise of value to be delivered, communicated and acknowledged. It is also a belief from the customer about how that value will be delivered, experienced and acquired. So I wanna kind of unpack that, break it down a bit and actually look for some kind of key elements in that. In particular, kind of key elements of things that you would be able to address and do something about In kind of renewing the V and P in your value propositions. So, first off, for me, a promise implies a contract of some form. That may be implicit or it may be explicit. It may be written or it may be verbal, but a promise is a form of contract. And actually, if you're communicating that, to be communicated, kind of implies some form of proposal. And again, that can be as formal or as informal as one likes. If that value is to be delivered, that implies some kind of outcome. And actually that outcome, if we're to talk about how that value is to be delivered, implies some kind of approach as well. We also need to think about the last remaining elements of this. We have a customer. That kind of doesn't imply anything else other than that there is a clear beneficiary of the service that is being provided through this value proposition. And the last element of this is about value, actually the benefit that is to be accrued, you know, to that beneficiary. I actually now wanna look at those kind of six words in a little bit more detail, because I think each of them are key things that we can ask questions about that help us to shape our value propositions going forward. So if we're going to renew the V&P in our value propositions, then we can start by looking at the benefit and the beneficiary. When we understand who the beneficiary is, we can then start to ask questions about what their sector drivers and needs are. We can start to understand their perspective and actually how our offerings therefore need to meet those expectations of their circumstances, not only our own. Once we've done that, we can kind of think about our approach and the outcome. And actually, I would always start with an appraisal of kind of how good are our current offerings. And we'll talk a lot more about that in a moment. But actually, having appraised our current offerings and the alignment of those offerings to those sector drivers and needs, we can then start to talk about what are our growth opportunities? What are our diversification opportunities? Are they market-based? Are they service-based? And ultimately, that gets us to come some kind of offering market mix and a dynamic that we can then use to help us to actually get a deeper understanding of our business and get a deeper understanding of what we need to change in our business to make that real. The last element of this, then, is to talk about the kind of contracts and the proposal. Actually, if you're going to be successful, you not only have to have a fabulous offering that you have pitched in a wonderful way innovative all of those sorts of things but you actually have to beat the competition i was taught a very long while ago that actually winning was about beating the competition as well as kind of delighting and amazing the client i'm now going to try and address kind of each of those key questions in terms of what i think you can do to seek answers to them actually what i'm going to do now is kind of run through what i think are a set of fairly common fairly simple tools that would help you to shape the answers to those questions the first of those is about understanding our beneficiaries our clients our customers whatever language we want to use drivers so you know how many of you I can't quite do a hands-up. I would have done if we'd have been in the room and looking at each other. But how many of you regularly review or develop a kind of pestle analysis? In my experience, when you raise kind of the mention doing a pestle, usually invokes in the kind of people I'm talking to, what I can only kind of describe as a kind of teenage mode of kind of do we have to? Yeah, My answer is always yes. This is the kind of starting position for your whole analysis, and if we don't understand our clients in sufficient kind of depth, then actually we're kind of going to build the rest of our analysis, you know, on well not necessarily quicksand, but certainly on an imperfect, improper preposition. This is kind of no more important, in my opinion, kind of ever than kind of now in responding to that kind of pandemic crisis you know we're all facing a common health crisis whether that's in public or private or business or personal or whatever however you know individual markets and individual businesses will be experiencing this pandemic in terms of the effect on their business you know very very differently dramatically differently you take a take a kind of situation of you know, the difference between what's happening to, say, the hospitality sector and the difference to what's happening to, say, the pharmaceutical sector. You know, they couldn't have more kind of polar opposite impact of what's happening in the kind of pandemic crisis at the moment. So kind of what's my advice? Well, you know, my advice starts with saying, actually, do do a pestle analysis or if not a pestle analysis, an equivalent of it. You know, it's one way, it's one form. Do it for kind of each market or sector that you're in. Do it also for the adjacent markets and sectors that you're in. So if you're in financial services and you're well-established in banking or whatever, think about the insurance sector. Think about other allied financial services markets that may be uh, affected the same or have similar dimensions, but actually make sure that you're having a, make sure you operate or, or undertake this in a kind of inclusive way as well my other advice would be do the research don't base this on your own hypothesis your own you know what you think is happening in a particular market you know speak to your clients understand their perspective actually you want to build this on as firm understanding as you possibly can about what's happening to them and their market position As I've said before, as I said a moment ago, this becomes the basis for everything else. So what is the everything else and where do we go to from here? So the next part of this for me is kind of looking at your current offerings. By that, I do really mean kind of critically appraising, and by that I mean looking at several dimensions, gathering the views of a wide range of people about your current offerings. You know, this isn't something that you know, product management do, or this isn't something that sales should do. This is something that actually the organization should do. Kind of I've used this approach countless times and you know, found it to be hugely insightful about building a really kind of rounded understanding about actually what we are genuinely offering to our clients. You need to draw up your kind of own criteria, but I tend to use the kind of criteria that you can see that are here on the slide. So completeness of offering. Actually, have we developed a robust product, methodology, whatever it is, is it complete in its current state? Actually, how well aligned to those sector drivers is it you know, we've just done our pestle analysis we've got a better understanding of what's happening in the sector actually how well aligned are our current products to it do we have a clear sales proposition you know do we have an articulation I'll skip down a couple of points of the benefits of our product in the market to our clients you know can we articulate that can we put a persuasive and clear sales proposition forward What therefore has been our kind of level of market penetration? How many customers do we have? What's our level of churn? And ultimately, what are our skills and knowledge of that offering or product? Now, I've put two kind of examples here, offering A, offering B, but actually they represent two very different things and two very different things when it comes to then thinking about kind of what you do next. So kind of offering A, as we see it here, Is really well aligned to the kind of sector drivers, but we can see it's a little bit incomplete and it's not really market tested at this point in time. It's clearly a new nascent offering that's coming out to the market. Offering B, on the other hand, actually looks like a bit of a legacy offering to me. It's got a really clear sales proposition. We've got deep market penetration. We've got great knowledge from the staff and great understanding within the staff, but we're now lagging the sector expectations with it so therefore you know actually when i start to look at these i would start to think about developing what my refresh might be i would be thinking about them in very different ways this is just kind of one approach to evaluating your offerings and yeah my experience is that this kind of approach does tend to kind of offer you quite a lot of detail i mean i've used a couple of different kind of symbols on here but actually, when I've done this for real, you know, actually the kind of, you know, the little logo, the, the, the round one with the kind of segment out of it, you know, is it quarter, is it half, is it three quarters, is it full, tends to be a really good way of kind of getting a sense of not only the depth, but also the kind of understanding you have of that kind of dimension of your product offering. you know, There are other ways of doing this. And one of the obvious other ways is to look at something like a kind of BCG product portfolio analysis. For those of you that are familiar, it's the, the dead dogs, the question marks, the cash cows, the stars, that kind of analysis. I actually think that's really great. I've used it many times myself, but it's really good for a kind of collective portfolio analysis. What it doesn't do is necessarily produce or drive you to have the kind of depth of thinking and understanding that perhaps this type of analysis does. Yeah, maybe the answer is that you actually need to do both. You need to do an individual product line or offering line analysis in the way we're sort of demonstrating or showing on the screen at the moment. But equally at the same time, maybe you do need to use that kind of BCG portfolio analysis to understand actually where you have more than one offering, where they sit relative to each other and how they perhaps might actually go forward in in a more cyclical sense. So if that's our offerings, where to? So we now need to think about our kind of growth opportunities. So this is where we now really start to think about the future. You know, so far, we've kind of really understood our clients' drivers and the maturity of our kind of product portfolio. Now we need to start to kind of understand, you know, actually what else is possible, permissible, and what other opportunities kind of are are there for us. So the analysis that we'll have just done in terms of our kind of product maturity analysis will have naturally led us to really the kind of bottom left quadrant of this diagram, i.e. we should now have some really good ideas about what we need to do with our current products in our current markets to drive deeper market penetration. So that's great. So that's kind of one part. We now need to think really about whether it's about service diversification. So we're going to stay in our core markets but we're going to seek to add or develop complementary services to those that we already offer, or in fact, whether we're going to flip the other way. And actually, we're going to stick with our kind of broad based current offerings. But we're now going to seek to take those into kind of new markets. The one thing I would suggest that you don't do is go for full diversification and try to take you know, new products to new markets. That for me is a seriously tough gig, not impossible, but a tough gig and not something that I would probably be considering in the kind of current climate. The other thing I would say about this is, you know, this is a very simple piece of analysis, but one of the things I would have in mind when I'm thinking about service and market diversification would be the, the sort of adjacent services and the adjacent markets. So therefore, you know, back to the point I made a little while ago, if it's about financial services, actually, I'll come back. In my own experience, you know, I ran Avail Consulting with Martin Wilson for six, seven years. We had a market diversification strategy, but it was all within the public sector. It took us from health and national security into a range of other public sector markets that were adjacent to those. And we could see clear market entry strategies for. So think about that adjacent analysis. Think about adjacent markets and adjacent services. But actually I would also consider and and encourage you to be quite expansive at this stage. There's kind of no wrong answer when you're doing the analysis at this level. This is about giving you a kind of starting point, an anchor, and it's about therefore enabling you to develop the full analysis over time. I'm working with an organization at the moment where we've done exactly this, And and now what we've generated is a kind of portfolio of projects. And in that portfolio of projects, the first thing to do is actually almost produce the kind of business case for that new service or for that new market. Having done that, we can then start to bring things together. We now understand our kind of market drivers, our sector drivers. So the verticals in in the matrix that we've got in front of us. We now start to understand the maturity of our propositions, the horizontals in this this diagram. And we've started to consider the kind of adjacent markets and the adjacent services, the new market, the new proposition. So pulling all of this together, enables us to start to present a view and a lens or a, a simple matrix that we can use to view the business through. Uh, and I think we've been joined today by a few ex-colleagues of mine. And those former colleagues will be kind of familiar with this matrix. It's one of the simplest. It's a very visual aid, but it sat at the heart of the kind of way we ran Avail and actually even the way I went on to lead Tribal in many respects. In the example we've got here, you know, we've got two established markets, market one and market two. I should have done one and two and A and B. I now recognize my mistake but we've got two established markets market one and market two and we've got three clear propositions what we can see though is that proposition two in market one is an amber it's a bit weaker it's not green we haven't actually penetrated proposition two into market one fully but we would have appear that proposition one is fully penetrated into markets one and two Proposition two is fully penetrated in market two and proposition three into market one. So we've got that kind of picture. So if I pick up the analysis from what I've done in terms of the sector analysis and the product maturity and the growth opportunities, the first thing I now want to do is think about can I actually drive proposition two deeper into market one? You know, actually, one of the objectives I've had in doing this and a simple language I've used is, you know, how do we turn the matrix green? So proposition two into market one becomes my first objective. That's my market penetration objective. The second thing to do is I want to add a new proposition. It's my strongest market. I've already got two well-established propositions in that market. That's the market I want to think about introducing a new proposition into. It's always easier to pitch a new proposition into an existing and strong market than it is into an aspirant market. Fine, let's do that. What do I want to do after that? Well, actually, I will now wanna take proposition three into market two. I've got deep penetration of proposition three in market one. Can I now take that across to that kind of adjacent market and establish that also there? So I'm now starting to really build up my kind of portfolio. I'm starting to say, well, actually here, if I can execute on these in a year's time, I could have three really strong propositions in market one with a a growing proposition, perhaps an amber proposition, and I'll still have my two strong market propositions in market two, but maybe I've now got an amber proposition as a new proposition coming forward as well. Fabulous, great. So then the last thing I want to do is actually I now want to take yeah, proposition one which is my strongest proposition into a new market and establish myself in a new sector a new market for myself and i'm going to do so with my strongest proposition because actually that's the one that i understand best it's got best market traction in the existing markets and therefore is the one that i'm going to have hopefully kind of greater success with so i've now built my kind of four objectives by bringing my prior analysis together building it up into that simple matrix and that understanding as i said before my objective with this is how do we turn the matrix green i can also use the matrix to do other things so again clients or colleagues that are on the phone will know this from days of old but you know i would then use this matrix to set my budgets my targets I'd set my sales targets to the markets. I'd set my revenue targets to the proposition owners. I'd plan my kind of headcount and recruitment. Actually, what proposition in each market has got what growth opportunity and therefore what headcount increment should we be talking about? I would also use this as a performance lens on the business. If I've set my targets in those ways, can we now evaluate the performance of the business through this lens? Having done all of that, absolutely fantastic, we now need to be able to sell those propositions. In selling the proposition, my starting position is, you know, as I said before, I can amaze and delight the client, but I'm not going to win the gig unless I can beat the competition. So beating the competition starts, in my experience, my expectation, with kind of understanding who our competition are. So again this is a really kind of simple matrix that allows us to to categorize our competition both in terms of well in terms of scale but on two dimensions one in terms of kind of organizational scale whether that's measured in people or money and one on kind of operating scale around the breadth of the offering that they bring to market and you get these kind of four quadrants you get the kind of niche boutique you get the service specialist you've got the multidisciplinary Actually, when I was putting this together, having done this many times before, I was struggling to remember the name of the kind of fourth quadrant. And Scattergun just seemed to be the right kind of uh, misnomer for it, the right description for it. It it was a case of, you know, this is a small organization that's shooting off all over the place. It's got a really broad offering. The first thing I want to do, though, having done that and uh, having established it, is plot myself. You know, In this example, I've positioned us as a niche consultancy that's wanting to grow. That arrow is very important because, actually, it's about understanding a travel, uh, you know, uh, an ambition, a, dir- a direction for that organisation. So, that's kind of us. We know where we sit. The next thing to do is plot our competition. So, in this example, we've got five competitors. Looks like we've got two in the multidisciplinary space. One looks like they're not going very far. They're, they're kind of pretty much plum and centre in their uh, scale and, and, and their kind of offering but don't seem to be moving very much. One is kind of slightly narrower in its its offering, still multidisciplinary, but narrower in its offering, but also larger in scale. And actually it's still seeking to kind of narrow and specialise a little bit more, but whilst retaining scale. One is a clear service specialist, that's kind of wanting to move more centrally in that. It's got some reasonable scale, it's still looking to grow scale, but it's also looking to slightly broaden its market presentation and offering. We've then got one that looks like it's moving in the opposite direction to us. Actually, it's a service specialist that's getting smaller. That looks like that's a business that's kind of losing market share, and perhaps it's actually a business in decline, who knows. And lastly, we've got that kind of organisation that's been a scattergun. Maybe it was a really young organisation that's tried a number of things and is now beginning to focus and actually bring itself back to being a kind of niche boutique organisation with a narrow offering. For me, this arms you with tremendous insight. You know, it gives you a sense of the kind of dynamic of the market, what's happening more broadly but it also actually even allows you to start to create personas for those other organizations, which you can then use in the sort of first stage of your kind of competitor analysis, if you can understand them and build uh, build out those personas. That leads me on to the kind of last really kind of substantive point that I wanted to make, which is really about how you take that kind of dynamic, Understanding of the market and actually build your kind of business competitive advantage. How do you understand what your competitive advantage is? You've got that kind of unique kind of analysis, that competitor kind of mapping. How do you turn that into unique competitive advantage for you? Much has been written about sources of competitive advantage. If you trawl the net, you'll find loads of articles on it, loads of different models that talk about everything from kind of just a couple of dimensions right up to kind of 15 or more dimensions of what is competitive advantage. You know, I've tended to settle on five. What are they? So those five for me are something about your product performance. So about robustness, about the economics of it, about the ease of it. You know, are there kind of, as, as I, my notes here, you know, are there kind of redeeming features about your product, your offering, whatever it is, that kind of make it unique in the marketplace. What about product perception? What about your brand? Actually, do you have a brand that's kind of bigger than the company? Delightful if you do. Do you therefore have a brand that you can kind of leverage as being part of your competitive advantage? Do you have a cost price advantage? Is that based around staff? Is that based around buying power? Have you outsourced some stuff? Actually, maybe have you transitioned some of your own proposition? to be overseas and therefore you can utilize the kind of cost price leverage that that gives you do you have a legal advantage you know do you have a patent or a copyright for something that again can be leveraged in that kind of competitive sense and kind of lastly you know actually have you formed some file of alliance or some sort of a relationship even a jv of some description that kind of gives you that kind of unique advantage against the other competitors. Maybe that's even with one competitor, or maybe that's with a supplier. Who knows? The likelihood is that there's just going to be one or two of these that are going to be your sources of competitive advantage. And you may have a slightly different list that you even start from in terms of evaluating those kind of sources. But my recommendation, my advice to you would be about how you're going to leverage those sources of competitive advantage kind of in your proposal, kind of in your pitch. And just before we kind of move to q and I kind of wanted to just recap on what I've kind of talked about so far. So I think, you know, we've kind of defined our beneficiaries and in particular, we've understood what their kind of sectoral drivers and needs are. We've done that broadly through our pestle analysis. We have looked at our current offerings, through either a BCG type analysis or through the kind of analysis that I presented here. We've used some kind of growth opportunity model to start to understand what our adjacent markets and services are and how we might move into them. And ultimately, we've landed at that kind of offering and market mix analysis, that matrix, that's now enabling us to kind of build out a little bit more of our almost our business plan in terms of our targets, in terms of, of our headcount, And in terms of more broadly, our kind of performance management. So we've got that and we've done that. We've also kind of looked at our competitors. We've mapped our competitors. So we kind of understand where they are and how they're moving. We may have even created some personas for them. And we've then started to articulate our sources of competitive advantage. Now, I've done that just generically once. You might decide that actually, you know, in your market, you you want to then start to think about much more about you know, those competitors on an individual basis not necessarily on a collective basis you know once you've done all of these things and I think if you've used the kind of wider capabilities of your organization and the knowledge of your organization you've even reached out to you know the wider market and in particular your clients then I think you're really at that point where you've kind of renewed kind of the VMP in your, in your value propositions so just returning to the kind of three pillars So I've covered the value propositions today. You know, as we said at the outset, Derry is going to pick up on the kind of operations dimension of post-lockdown success and kind of what that means for you next Tuesday. And Nick will pick up on the marketing dimension of that next Thursday. I really think that's kind of a good point for me to kind of probably draw breath. Thank you very much for listening to me for the last what has been close on 40 minutes and I'd really like to kind of now invite Derry and Nick to kind of rejoin me and open this up to Q&A. Gents you've been kind of monitoring the q and as we've been going along have you kind of are there stuff for me to answer actually is there stuff for you to ask each other that's relevant to what we've kind of already picked up on?
0: Yeah so we've, we've got a few questions Rob so I think the first question and just touches on Rob, what you were talking about the different different markets is actually so one of our attendees wants to know how do you define that how do you decide what that market is to know whether you can or can't move into it
1: really good question so i mean knowing your current markets is a good starting point for that to understand kind of what the adjacent or the new markets are and i think people define markets in different ways you know both in terms of scale and i suppose perspective from one perspective word you know, certainly you know, my personal background has been probably within the public sector most generically. People might consider the public sector to be a market. I would consider it to be a sector, and this may be kind of starting to kind of split hairs, but I would consider the public sector to be that a sector. I would then consider within it there to be a series of markets. So you've got the kind of classic markets in. You know, if I keep using that example, you've got the classic markets of maybe defence or health. You know, what you start to do is within a sector, you then start to move into things that are perhaps slightly more thematic about that sector, and you pick up on different dimensions of the sector itself. So if I use my kind of own company as an example, when we had Avail Consulting, so Avail you know, started, as I said, very much kind of anchored in in health and national security. Why were we in those two markets? Because they're not that closely allied, if I'm honest. We were in those two markets because it was about the experience and the knowledge of the leaders of the business. Myself and Martin Wilson as my business partner in that context. Martin was very much well imbued in health and I was in national security. And we leveraged those markets. But I'd say we leveraged two markets within the public sector as a macro sector. What we then started to do was to kind of diversify within that sector and look at adjacent markets where we could have a relatively easy point of entry. From the national security, we actually looked at defence. We looked at the defence really closely, and actually we decided it was the wrong thing for us to do. Actually, it wasn't so adjacent as we thought. There was a much bigger step across, and actually it wasn't the market that we could transition into easily. We did, though, from health, then start to look at aspects of social care. That led us into local government. And actually that also led us into education. So you then started to get a kind of perhaps a slightly more natural diversification of markets across that space. Where the national security stuff took us to and we were able to really execute on was much more into kind of perhaps the justice space. So we then started to move across into criminal justice and we did quite a lot of work there. So I would consider that there's a kind of broad definition of a sector. But then there's a kind of definition of what your kind of markets within that sector and how do you access those
2: different markets? I think I'd just build on that with one thing, which is to think about the needs of the customer as well. So if if you're really clear on what the needs are and you can find markets where there are similar needs so that your proposition is likely to resonate, then I would start with those first. And the only other thing is for a lot of firms, particularly at the smaller end, being as focused as you can, finding the smallest possible market that's big enough for you to achieve your goals gives you a higher likelihood of success as well so mm, if you're I super agree. focused super crisp on your proposition for that market then you're much more likely to be successful and seen as the expert for those that client base
0: i was going to echo that Darren. i think from a marketing perspective and we'll, we'll, we'll come on to this more in detail next week but that is the number one thing that you know, helps we see work for clients and also the number one thing a lot of people get wrong is it is that being as as niche as you can, and doing so, I guess, to that you know, to the starting question, in a way that resonates with your clients' industries. So there are certain industries, you know, a, a public sector, you know, close, better than I do, Rob, but public sector can be quite a broad church, and people are quite accepting of that. Absolutely. Whereas, you know, even within financial services, for instance, if you're working in insurance, they can be quite particular, and so actually. Part of that market is defined by you, but part of that's also that industry context. So, if actually your industry is quite, I guess, elitist about what they do, you are better off being specific than you are going broad and diluting that message. To Derry's point,
1: yeah, no, and, and sorry, guys, you're, you're reinforcing you know, that the Avail experience was we stayed very true to the public sector. Yeah, you know, we looked at those market movements within the public sector and the client demands of them and some were you know steps that we could take and some were steps that we decided we couldn't take.
0: Brilliant. So just keeping conscious we we've we've got more questions we've probably got time to so I'm gonna gonna try and just keep us going chap. So building on that a little another question from one of the attendees they've got a proposition that they've been working on. They've road tested it with a number of clients seems to be going really well to your point Rob they want to take that step. So they're saying we want to move from market one to market two how would you advise doing that and i don't know Rob, whether this is better for you or for Derry. but how would you advise doing that in a world where we're all working remotely it's hard to bring people up to speed on approaches training that sort of thing what's the best way to be i guess building out those new offerings quickly to hit the market and really sort of strike while the iron's hot
2: so to speak Derry, do you want to kick off yeah shall I? Shall I turn on? so i think for this this is all about how do you how do you get up to speed with how you your team up to speed with the new proposition so that they can deliver value as much as, as quickly as possible and that is all about the crispness of how you've articulated your proposition so making sure that you've got a really good set of materials that articulate the proposition the value it brings the situations it's relevant to and in whatever way is appropriate for your firm enabling your team to get up to speed on that so whether they self-teach or whether you run training sessions whether there's just a really well-documented set of capabilities. And there are tools out there like uh, like Method Grid, for example, where you can document a set of capabilities and approach really crisply and allow people to learn from that. So for me, that's really all about how getting the new proposition documented as crisply as possible so that your team can be really clear on what it is they're supposed to be doing. You, in this market where things are moving so fast, you can't afford to take months for someone to come up to speed on how to deliver.
1: I would agree. I mean, I think from you know sort of personal experience, you've also got the kind of, I suppose, that kind of platform client that enables you to kind of make that transition, you know, taking something to a market where actually you don't have at least a kind of first, second kind of client that you think is going to be your kind of almost test case for that product in that market, you know, is going to be really challenging. And, 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 you know, you can cite the example of, kind of uh, I think it was uh, in the 90s Accenture wanting to move into kind of outsourcing and actually I think that the record is and colleagues on the phone will know better than me but I think it was at least kind of six or seven kind of pitches before they actually got the pitch right as it were and were successful in that market and obviously went on to be hugely successful in that market but it is about having that first kind of client to recognize that 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 move
0: so I, yeah, I don't think I've got anything extra to to add on that, chaps. And again, we're sort of we're seeing quite a few questions come in, which is which is great. So another one to pick up on, and and I might start on this one just because it, it it feels more marketing. But I welcome your thoughts as well. So any thoughts on how to tackle the challenges we're talking about? So market growth, for building relationships and credibility, but remotely. So the question is, how do we do everything Rob's talked about remotely? And actually, the person asking this one is an independent consultant. So why don't I give a couple of minutes? Because I think you know, the answer from Create Engage would broadly be similar, albeit it's a different scale, and then welcome your thoughts. So I think this is the key challenge, and it's partly why we're we're doing this as a series, because none of these components can exist on their own. And actually okay. it's by having all of them together that, that you reinforce that. So everything Rob's talked about today, you know, you need as a starting point for your marketing. And where a lot of firms go wrong with their marketing is by not doing what Rob's talked about today. So I've, I've lost count of the number of transformation consultancies, and to Rob's four-box diagram, unless you're an Accenture or a PwC or a firm of that ilk, you're, you're gonna fall in that bottom right, that scattergun. So how can you be doing these things from my side And you know, Rob and Derry keen to get your, your take. I think this is a, f- a fantastic example. One of the things that we're seeing, whether you're independent or a boutique firm, or frankly, even a larger firm, is this period has actually presented huge opportunity for you because you can compete at the same scale as your larger competitors, you can demonstrate your expertise and do so in a really cost-effective way. So what we're doing here, for instance, in know, webinar, the cost of doing this is our time. There's no financial investment, we've not had to hire a meeting room, a conference suite, we've not had to put an event on, and we've got over 70 people signed up to join us for this today. So for the person asking who's independent, that would be, be straight away where I'd be saying, how can you get in front of your target clients? How can you give value in a way that will demonstrate that expertise? And that also applies whether you're an independent, you're a firm of 10, 20, or, or even larger. But I, I don't want to preempt too much of what we'll cover in the session on Thursday. So I'll pause there and Rob, Derry, any other thoughts on that?
2: I think I would just reiterate the point earlier about focus. So if you're an independent Mm. consultant, you're effectively just the smallest possible consulting firm. And Mm. so I would not be thinking about market one, market two, market three, and multiple propositions. I would be thinking about one sub-market, one very niche bit of of an industry, and one proposition, and Mm. just really hammer that and make sure that everybody that is relevant to you in that market knows who you are and what you're great at. And social media and linkedin is just a phenomenal platform for that in the current environment yeah definitely absolutely.
1: guys i think you've answered that really well i've got nothing to add i can see another question that's come in from someone who's talking about the fact that they would normally do this exercise kind of once a year reflecting mm. on the fact that it's very resource intensive but that kind of the market is moving at a pace and probably in at least two phases of development as we come out of the kind of Immediate pandemic, but into the recession, and actually, you know, they're asking for our kind of thoughts on, you know, would you advise an organization to do this kind of more than once a year? So, why don't I kick off and then perhaps Jerry or Nick, you kind of add to this? I mean, my, my kind of opening position is that, you know, for the lion's share of my career, I have done this once a year in the organization that I have been in or leading. It is typically an annual exercise. I've also typically done it on perhaps a three year cycle where actually you know, every third year, it's a very expansive exercise. And the intermediate years, it's a slightly smaller exercise. I actually think that kind of philosophy can be applied to what we're we're facing now. You know, actually, there is going to be a point where I think you need to be, you know, agile and responsive. And being agile and responsive doesn't mean to say doing the whole exercise twice a year or even every quarter. What it actually means is, you know, not kind of doing the exercise, parking it on the shelf and not thinking about it again for 12 months. It means having it kind of fore and centre and actually probably in slightly more of a rolling review process whereby you're looking at it more frequently but actually the frequency means that you're looking at it with perhaps not quite the same depth but the depth comes on maybe still that annual cycle. Actually a three-year cycle at the moment would be slightly nuts but on either that annual cycle and, and having that kind of slightly more kind of rolling review approach to it i mean derry probably this is slightly more in your territory alongside me what were your thoughts
2: yeah i mean i was going to say exactly the same thing actually so you go through that exercise but think of it as developing a list of priorities and then start with the biggest priorities and then when you come to thinking about the things that are second third fourth on your list review them in the current context. so you don't have to go through the entire exercise again but you should have a really clear rationale for why you prioritise those in the first place and the underlying assumptions. And if those assumptions have changed, then you maybe revisit, and if they haven't, you can just hit the go button on the, on the next thing that, that you're ready to do.
1: Uh, and a bit, a bit sort of, I don't know, jingoistic, but it's in that scenario of having that list and, and working through it that is you, yeah, if the market's evolving and you're gonna fail, fail fast and kind of move on to the next things and keep a kind of level of dynamism in what you're doing, you know, keep it under review, And you know, set a different kind of almost metronome for the organisation in terms of the pace at which you look at these things.
2: I think the other thing that's critical is like just talking to your customers more, talking to your clients more, and just understanding. A lot of them won't necessarily understand what they need and how their business is going to be impacted. There's so much uncertainty coming, so helping them figure that out and talking to them an awful lot will help you refine how you can be valuable, and that is all building the relationship and building the advisor status as well.
1: Uh, very definitely. Yeah.
0: And just to touch on that and almost reinforce what you're saying, Derry, from that marketing perspective, I, I think it, it, that is critical is actually at a time like this, you know, having this yearly, this three yearly exercise is a good a good starting point and a good backbone to your, you know, to your proposition. Then from a marketing perspective, actually, how can we be working to a weekly schedule right now? So a bit like you said, what are our clients telling us? And I think that feedback loop is is really key is making sure that you're playing back. What are your clients telling you? What are the pain points they're they're highlighting? And then making sure that you are articulating your benefit to them. So someone in the questions asked about how do you demonstrate your added value? Well, your added value is contextual to your client's problems. So if right now, let's say everyone's struggling with how to return to work, you know, it's a real issue for people. That's the sort of thing that you should be taking back and saying, okay, how can we market that in the next week, in the next month? What are we doing there? So I think part of it's, a like Rob said, that pragmatism. And Derry, I think to your point, on the last question as well it's about being specific on how much of that do we need to focus on right now externally and how do we do that quickly from a marketing perspective so i think chaps i think we're pretty much there i've got an interesting question we've got time someone's asking about whether webinars are good things or bad things i kind of feel as we're running a webinar we should we, we should, should answer, answer them it. i think it should be our um, last question yeah so i'll give a very short take but i i you know as someone selling webinars, I kind of feel like we shouldn't be the ones to answer this. So I'll, I'll give my short view and something that landed with a client the other day, and then I'll pass over to yourself. So you know, the question is simply, well, look, there's lots of webinars going on. There's lots of LinkedIn noise. You know, will I get lost in the noise? Should I just not do it? And I kind of, the answer I gave to a client before, and I think applies just to the same here, is, is think about what your 13-year-old school disco was like. Standing on the wall didn't get you the girl. And I think it's just the same here, is just because there's a lot of webinars out there, just because there's a lot of LinkedIn, Firstly, that doesn't mean it's all good. You know, Volume does not equal quality. And secondly, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be doing it. Your clients, the people who wanna work with you, wanna hear from you, and by not doing it, all you're guaranteeing is you get zero people. You get zero leads. By doing a session, even if you get 10, you know, with the average consulting project being 100K, 100K plus, you don't need many clients to build a business and ultimately sell like we're talking about. But as I say, I sell this stuff, so I, I'm slightly biased. Rob, Derry, I know you've done a number of webinars over the last few weeks. What, what's your experience
1: been? Well, Derry, I was gonna say, I think we should leave it at that point because I think we should leave it with Nick's image of the school disco, which is kind of- <laughs> Maybe that was just my school of, disco. <laughs> just kind of bringing back kind of memories of a very long while ago, but you know, it, it's, a, it's a nice image. Look guys, I think we should wrap it up at that point. And I think it probably just remains for me to say, thank you to everybody. And to just kind of say that, you know, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, you know, we hope you found some of this really stimulating and helpful. We look forward to welcoming you to the two follow-up webinars next week, next Tuesday and subsequent Thursday. We'll, of course, send out the slides for this session and the subsequent sessions in due course. You know, just really thank you very much and goodbye.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone.
0: I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb in Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.